This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, the rural roadside was illuminated by the flames consuming the trailer and the blue and red flashing lights of the emergency vehicles. It was a chaotic scene as people desperately tried to rescue the teenage girls believed to be trapped inside. As firefighters dashed toward the blaze, someone on the road noticed a girl lying face down in the mud. When paramedics noticed a gaping six-inch wound in her abdomen, they believed she had been injured in the fire somehow. But when a surgeon found a shotgun wad inside her body at the hospital, it was clear that the fire had been set intentionally to cover a horrific crime. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 81 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Creek is a small mountain community nestled inside the Six Rivers National Forest in California. Willow Creek sits between the Bigfoot Scenic Highway and the Trinity River. It's a small community with less than 2,000 residents, but numerous tourists flock to Willow Creek to try and catch a glimpse of the notorious Sasquatch that is said to reside on the hills. It's an area steeped in mystery, but also surrounded by incredible beauty. The small town appealed to Betty and Hans Hansen and their young children. The couple were married for three years, and they made the move from Fortuna with Betty's children from a previous relationship, seven-year-old Becky and five-year-old Donnie, and their twin daughters, Jill and Julie, who were just babies at the time. Hans set up a logging business next to the family's trailer, and the family quickly became well-known and well-respected in the community. The small community became like an extended family to the Hansons when one of their daughters, Jill, was diagnosed with leukemia as a child. The twins had many friends and their house was a hub of activity. Their best friend's mom said, Other kids left their homes to have fun, but Jill and Julie had other kids into their home to have fun. By November 1986, Becky and Donnie had moved out of the trailer. Donnie was attending the College of the Redwoods and living with his maternal grandmother in Fortuna. On November 14, 1986, he traveled to Willow Creek to visit with family and have a belated birthday celebration. Donnie arrived around 10 p.m. He later said, I was late getting there because I had mowed my grandma Johnny's lawn. My sister Becky had made a four-layer dessert for my birthday, so I took it over to Willow Creek so the rest of the family could eat it. When he arrived, Jill was watching television in the living room with her boyfriend and Julie was in her bedroom on the phone with a friend. Betty and Hans were in their room getting packed for a trip to Santa Rosa they had scheduled for the following week. 
Later that night, they all sat down to watch Joan Rivers on the TV before going to bed. Jill decided to sleep in Julie's room with her because Julie had a TV set, so Donnie fell asleep watching MTV. At around 3 a.m., Betty Hansen jolted awake. She could smell smoke and immediately shook Hans, who was sleeping in the bed next to her. Hans jumped out of bed and rushed to open the bedroom door. He was instantly beaten back by flames which were covering the hallway. The fire was starting to spread up the walls of the trailer, and as Hans called out for their children, he attempted to fight the blaze with a fire extinguisher they kept in the broom closet. Almost as soon as he sprayed the fire extinguisher into the hallway, the flames came back. Betty ran through to the living room where she briefly saw her son, Donnie, shouting at someone through the back door and running outside. Hans was close behind, and the three of them raced to Hans' wood shop to get more fire extinguishers. Betty rushed to the phone and called the Willow Creek Fire Department. By the time firefighters arrived, Hans, who was just in his underwear, and Donnie, wearing only a pair of jeans, had gone through numerous fire extinguishers to no avail. Hans had broken the girl's bedroom window after hearing one of his daughters call out, Daddy, but there was no sign of Julie or Jill. As the firefighters were trying to douse the flames, someone spotted someone lying face down in the mud across from the burning trailer. It was 16-year-old Julie, who was barely conscious. When someone turned her over, they noticed a gaping wound in her abdomen, and she was immediately bundled into an ambulance and rushed to Mad River Hospital in Arcata. Jill was still inside the trailer, and when the fire was finally put out, her body was found in the kitchen. Humboldt County Sheriff's investigators were dispatched to the scene when it became clear that the fire was arson. When Julie Hansen was brought in for surgery, it emerged there had also been a shooting. Julie had a six-inch wound in her abdomen. During emergency surgery, the surgeon found a wad of shotgun shell lodged in her stomach. Julie had been shot at close range. As her parents waited at the hospital for news on her condition, Jill's body was taken out of the house for an autopsy. Jill had been found in the kitchen. Melted plastic and broken glass lay beneath her body. When her remains were examined by the pathologist, they discovered that she too had been shot. Jill had been shot twice with a shotgun. One shot had torn off her right arm, and another went through her thigh, rendering her unable to move or escape the burning trailer. She had not died from her injuries, though. Jill's cause of death was listed as smoke inhalation. Three shotgun shells were recovered inside the house, and two gas canisters were also found. One was amongst the debris, and the other was just outside the trailer. Investigators decided to search Han's workshop for any evidence. In the corner of the shop, they discovered a shotgun, and there was a clear palm print on the stock of the weapon. The scene was cordoned off as investigators canvassed neighbors in the area. One neighbor described how they awoke to the sound of yelling, and when they looked outside, they saw Julie stagger down the steps of the deck and move to the street as she whimpered. 
Another neighbor said they heard gunshots shortly before they could hear the sirens from the approaching fire trucks. Someone also saw a car speed away from the area. While Julie was in the hospital in critical condition, her parents stayed by her bedside. The sheriff's department investigators were watching the scene closely, and two nights after the blaze, they spotted someone who had crossed the tape. When they confronted the shadowy figure, they learned it was Donnie Hansen, the victim's brother. Donnie told police that he had returned to check on the family dog, but they were suspicious of his story almost immediately, as they knew the dog had been taken to a neighbor's house. Ballistic tests had been performed on the shotgun found in the shop, and the results proved that it had been the weapon used to shoot both Julie and Jill. Donnie had been an almost straight-A student and excelled at Canyonville Bible Academy in Canyonville, Oregon. He had enrolled at Humboldt State University after graduating with honors. However, he dropped out after a year and began attending College of the Redwoods instead. Donnie had been a doting older brother his entire life, but as the investigation continued and Julie became well enough to give a statement, he soon became a person of interest. Julie said she remembered waking up beside Jill and going out into the hallway. When she was first transported to the hospital, she believed that Donnie had pulled her out of the burning trailer and that she didn't see anyone else. But when she was asked again two weeks later, she said she saw Donnie's face in the shotgun flash when she was shot. This was damning, and when the investigators discovered that the palm print on the shotgun matched Donnie Hansen, he was asked to come in for questioning. On December 2nd, 1986, Donnie voluntarily presented himself at the courthouse, where he was subjected to an intense interrogation. Donnie had borrowed the shotgun from a friend two days before the incident to go shooting. That same day, he purchased two cans of gasoline at a service station in Willow Creek. The credit card receipts were found in his Ford Torino. The following day, one day before the fire, Donnie bought a box of 12-gauge shotgun ammunition. When confronted with the evidence, Donnie admitted that he had moved the gun into the shop after the fire broke out, but said it was because he was scared someone would find it and suspect him. No one had known at that point that Jill or Julie had been shot. Donnie was asked to consent to a polygraph examination. After failing the polygraph, examiners concluded that he was being deceptive in two separate tests. He was charged with arson and the murder of his sister, Jill. The close-knit family dynamic was suddenly fractured. Hans, who had raised Donnie as his own for almost 20 years, could not bring himself to doubt the evidence that was mounting against his son. Betty took more convincing. She could not believe that Donnie would harm his sisters or try to kill his parents by setting fire to the trailer. They were heartbroken over Jill's death, but they found some consolation in the fact that Julie seemed to be recovering well. Julie was an honor roll student at Hoopa High. She was also a member of the student government and president of the pep club. As someone with a lot of friends, Julie always had visitors with her, and Betty recalled there were kids lined up to stay with them when Julie got home so she wouldn't miss Jill as much. 
By mid-December, Julie was moving around, walking the hallways, and trying to put makeup on to make herself feel some sense of normality again. She was also looking forward to coming home for the holidays. Many of her vital organs had been damaged from the shotgun blast, and she was having trouble eating. As a result, on December 18th, a tube was inserted in her left shoulder to provide essential nutrients. Soon after 4 a.m. on December 19, 1986, nurse aide Deborah Vandiver Krause woke Julie to check her vital signs during the nightly rounds. Julie seemed fine, and she was sitting on the edge of the bed watching television when nurse Krause left to get her a glass of water. Within seconds, another member of staff heard faint cries for help coming from Julie's room. When they entered the room, they saw Julie lying face down on the floor. Medical staff rushed to her aid and turned her over, but her face was turning blue and she stopped breathing. After an hour of resuscitation attempts, Julie Hansen was pronounced dead at 6 a.m. The doctors noted that the IV tubing that had been connected to the subclavian catheter was hanging loose, so they immediately suspected that an air bubble had traveled through the catheter into Julie's heart. The pathologist who performed Julie's autopsy confirmed that she had died from an air embolism that had been caused when the catheter disconnected as she was sitting on the edge of the bed. It was another devastating blow to the Hansons, especially as Julie was on her way to recovering. Her death also meant that Donnie Hansen was charged with a second count of murder. However, her statement about seeing him would be inadmissible in court because she could not be cross-examined. The pretrial publicity surrounding the case was intense. A defense survey revealed that almost 70% of Humboldt County residents believed Donnie had killed his sisters. An expert on change of venue proceedings, Dr. Edward Bronson from Chico State University testified at a hearing to move the trial out of the county. He said, I think there has been a very large amount of press publicity compared to other cases I've worked on. Dr. Bronson spoke about a number of elements that he believed contributed to the public feeling that Donnie was guilty. The district attorney had publicly stated that the case was damaged when Julie died because her statements were inadmissible. This told the public that Julie had implicated Donnie and would have testified if she'd lived. District Attorney Terry Farmer had made several statements in the media about the case, including saying that Donnie had lied about the fire. There were also damning statements from Donnie's own defense attorney, James McKittrick. McKittrick had told reporters he would drop the case if he believed his client was not innocent. Soon after, McKittrick stepped down. His reasons for doing so were never made public, but the community firmly believed that was a sign that Donnie was not innocent. In November 1987, Judge J. Michael Brown ruled there was a reasonable likelihood that Donnie could not receive a fair trial in Humboldt County. The trial was eventually moved to Alameda County Superior Court where jury selection began in mid-February 1988. Jury selection took almost two months, and five women and seven men were finally seated on April 20th. Donnie Hansen was charged with the murder of his sisters, Jill and Julie, and the attempted murder of his parents. 
If he were found guilty, he would be facing the death penalty. Opening statements began a week later before presiding judge Larry Goodman. DA Terry Farmer told the jury that the prosecution believed Donnie Hansen planned to kill his family in November 1986. He highlighted that Donnie had borrowed a shotgun and brought two cans of gasoline two days before the killings. Farmer said that Donnie had claimed to have woken up to a loud noise and saw a dark figure with a gas can before seeing Julie collapse at his feet. The prosecutor argued that the evidence didn't match and that Julie had been shot at such close range that the wad of the shotgun shell was found by the physician treating her at Mad River Hospital. Farmer also said that Donnie had tried to hide the shotgun and when it was found by investigators, it had his palm print on the stock. The prosecution presented two possible motives at the trial. The first was that the relationship between Donnie and his parents had deteriorated after he graduated from high school, and they were unhappy with some of the decisions he was making. Farmer said that Donnie's parents didn't like that he had sold a car they had bought for him and instead purchased an old Corvette that constantly needed repairs. The second motive was financial gain. A mechanic from Eureka testified that Donnie had told him he put a deposit down on a new Corvette and he expected he would be coming into money in the six-figure range soon. The prosecutor explained that Donnie stood to inherit a substantial amount of insurance money in the event of his family's death. Farmer said, He told a couple of witnesses that he expected to come into a large sum of money before his 21st birthday. The murders occurred a week after his 21st birthday. Investigators had been unable to find any dealerships where Donnie had put a deposit down on a new car, and he had not mentioned money to any of his friends. Donnie's defense attorney, Bill Bragg, told the jury that law enforcement officials had ignored leads which implicated others when Donnie was charged. He described Donnie as a loving brother who would not take his sister's lives and said that Donnie had made a mistake when he attempted to hide the gun, but mistakes are insufficient to prove guilt. The defense called a number of witnesses that picked apart the state's case. One of the Hansons' neighbors, Ella Dobrak, testified that she had seen local teenagers Tim Williams and Shane Smith outside the Hanson home as it burned. She also noticed ash on William's shoulder. Their behavior was suspicious enough to prompt a call to the sheriff's department. The defense told the jury that the deputy sent to interview the teens was Deputy Wally Williams, one of the teenagers' uncles. Attorney Bragg said that the deputy asked his nephew why the shoulder was covered with ashes, but the conversation was not detailed in any reports, and the deputy had initially denied ever interviewing the pair. Williams had testified that he and Smith were playing Rambo on the morning of the fire near the Willow Creek Lumber Mill, and he was covered in sawdust, not ash, because he was hiding from mill workers. The owner of the mill disputed this when he said that no one had been working at the mill that morning. Bragg told the court that the teenagers had been taking methamphetamine that night. He stated, Both those kids were lying about where they were that night. Williams admitted he had been doing at least half a pound of crank that night at a party. Speaking about Deputy Williams leaving the interview out of his reports, 
Deputy DA Max Cardoza remarked, It wasn't anything he did consciously. When you're writing a report, you only put in the pertinent facts. There is absolutely no evidence linking Williams or his friend to the crime. They weren't the ones that borrowed the weapon, purchased the gasoline, or tried to hide the weapon. Three witnesses testified to seeing a car drive away from the scene toward Highway 199. Two of those witnesses had heard gunshot blasts, the squeal of tires, and approaching sirens. Bragg said, most people drive to a fire, not away from one. The defense criticized the investigation and told the jury that the sheriff's department had never requested fingerprints from the box of shotgun shells. They had told the Department of Justice analysts not to conduct tests on the shotgun after Donnie's palm print was found. What's more, the palm print had been outlined by white dust that came from the fire extinguisher, corroborating Donnie's account that he had only moved the gun from his car to the shed after he had been attempting to put out the fire with his parents. Bragg said, He saw that the gun in the backseat of his car had been moved. He panicked and tried to hide the gun. If there had been any fingerprints on those shells other than Donnie's, it might have exonerated him. In closing, the DA argued that it had been proven that Donnie had gotten the gas and the gun, and he had tried to hide and retrieve the gun after the fire. Farmer said, Those and other facts taken together show that the only reasonable explanation is that he was the one who committed the crime. After two months of testimony, the jury were sent out to deliberate. They returned six hours later. The courtroom was almost empty when the verdict was returned, and Donnie Hansen broke down in tears. He hugged his attorneys. Donnie Hansen was found not guilty. Hans Hansen, Julie and Jill's father, spoke outside the court and said, It's kind of hard to digest the hard fact that someone I believe is responsible for killing my two daughters is now out running loose. After almost 19 months in jail, Donnie was released, and his attorney, Bill Bragg, later revealed that he and Donnie had dinner and drinks with three of the jurors. Bragg said that the investigation had been shoddy, and there were indications of flat-out incompetence bordering on deliberate malfeasance. Bragg's co-counsel, Chelfie, claimed that once the investigators believed Donnie was responsible, they shut down their investigation. The defense also criticized the Department of Justice for not checking for prints on the ammo or the gun. The district attorney admitted there were lots of holes in the case, but maintained his belief that Donnie was guilty despite the verdict. Farmer claimed that jurors had told him they felt Donnie was responsible, but given the state of law, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they could not return that verdict. He said that the sheriff's department did a fine job, and it was the state investigators who failed to check the weapon for prints. Farmer also believed the case was damaged because Julie's statements were ruled inadmissible when she died. Farmer said, He's guilty. I'm sure he is guilty. But we just didn't have the evidence to prove it. I can't blame the jury for that. My only consolation is that I can't think of anything we could have done differently. It was a case that had to be tried. The DA explained that he would go to his grave believing Donnie was responsible and said it was primarily circumstantial evidence presented, 
But it was Donnie's police statements that convinced him in his heart, mind, and soul that he was guilty. Farmer believed that it wasn't what Donnie said, but how he said it. He told the Time Standard, His house was burned down, one of his sisters was dead, the other shot. You'd think he would either be angry, wanting to go out and get the person who did this, or that he would be too grief-stricken to talk. Instead, he calmly relates his activities on the day before the murder. Virtually everyone who listened to these tapes said, This guy did it. Farmer highlighted that Donnie had failed two polygraphs, which were not admissible as evidence, but the conservative examiners were the type to give a person the benefit of the doubt because they felt that he was lying. Farmer called Donnie the calmest, coolest liar he'd ever met. Jurors described how they were troubled by the prosecution's inability to show exactly what had happened inside the house that night. Bill Bragg said that people assumed he had pulled something out of a hat to get Donnie acquitted, but he felt that any competent defense attorney could have won this case on the facts. Bragg said it was undisputed that Donnie was out of the house within 30 seconds of his parents waking up. He would have needed to shoot his sisters without waking his parents, who were sleeping just 15 feet away, but the evidence showed that the shots were fired after Donnie and his parents had left the house. Jill's body was found in the kitchen with melted plastic and glass beneath it. A pathologist had testified that she would have fallen immediately after being shot and could not have moved. The glass and plastic had fallen to the floor from the ceiling fixtures when the fire had spread to the ceiling. Hans had testified that the fire had not spread to the ceiling when he left the trailer, so Jill could not have been shot in the kitchen until after everyone else was outside, and it was undisputed that Donnie was the first one out. Hans had testified that he heard one of his daughters yell out, Daddy, while he was outside close to the bedroom. At that point, unbeknownst to Hans, Julie was already across the street and unable to call out, so it had to have been Jill who called for him. That corroborated the evidence that Jill was alive in the room and then went to the kitchen when everyone else left. Neighbors had testified that they woke up to a loud noise and then, moments later, they heard two shots followed by the siren from the fire station. The first firefighter to reach the station had set off the manual siren. Bragg said, Given the short period of time between the shots and the fire siren compared to the response time of the firemen, the shots had to have occurred at or after the time the firemen received the initial phone call. That came from Mrs. Hansen after Donnie was out of the residence. Secondary factors also pointed to Donnie's innocence. In the ambulance, Julie had told the doctor that her brother had helped her out of the house. The lock of the trailer door was found in a picked position, which the defense believe implied that someone had broken in. Betty Hansen spoke to a reporter from the Time Standard about how she would accept whatever the jury decided. She criticized the investigation and said she was not surprised by the not guilty verdict. Betty stated, I am not surprised because of the poor investigation by the Sheriff's Department and the DA office. They pointed the finger at Donnie within three hours and never looked at anyone else. If they would have done a better job, 
Donnie might not have had to spend a year and a half of his life in jail. Betty revealed that at one point, law enforcement had convinced her that Donnie was guilty, but her husband, Hans, was still convinced and said so on the witness stand. She said, Hans would never talk to Donnie's attorney. He only talked to law enforcement. I think my husband is brainwashed. Betty had not spoken to Donnie since shortly after his arrest and following his acquittal, she remarked, I don't know if he'll ever want to see or talk to us again, and I wouldn't blame him. I have such mixed feelings, but I do feel that justice was not served in my daughter's deaths. Donnie had been released from Santa Rita Jail in Pleasanton, where he had been for the proceedings after spending over a year in the Humboldt County Jail. His attorney, Bill Bragg, believed Donnie would likely move away from Willow Creek. He said, Donnie is in a little bit of a cultural shock right now. He doesn't have a family left. Bragg revealed that Donnie's biological father and aunt had been supportive, but they didn't live on the North Coast, so Donnie would probably move to be closer to them. Bragg said, if he could reconcile with his family, that would be heaven for him. But I think he realizes that it really wouldn't be good for him to come to Humboldt County as far as anything permanent. Three days after Donnie's acquittal, he went to visit his sister's graves. Speaking about the shock of sudden freedom, he said, One day, you're the worst thing that ever walked on this planet. The next day, they say, okay, you can go. I was charged with two murders, with two attempted murders, with murdering two young girls. How much worse can it get? Donnie blamed the investigators for the divide in his family, he told the Times Standard. It was just incredible what they put my family through, my mom and Hans too. I went through a time when my mother hated me. Here was the person I loved most in the world, and she hated me. So I told myself my mother doesn't love me, so I don't love my mother. I had to play head games. Jill and Julie are physically dead, but the other four members of our family died in a way. Sometimes I wonder if Jill and Julie aren't better off. Donnie gave his account of the night of the fire and shooting. He said, I woke up in hell and I never ended. He claimed that after seeing Julie in the hallway, he helped her outside before running to get a fire extinguisher. He said, I didn't realize she had been shot. I just scooped her up from behind and carried her out. I think I even dropped her on the deck. I didn't know she was hurt. I was screaming and yelling. Donnie described how he was devastated by Jill's death, especially because she had survived leukemia. He said, It really tears me up, the memory of Jill. She went through hell with the loss of hair, spinal taps. It doesn't seem fair that she had to die that way. If you had to pick someone who went through so much and never became negative, she was the most perfect person I ever knew. I don't mean to say I love Jill more than Julie. Julie was special in her own way. The way Julie hated me before she died, that's the kind of stuff that can push me to the limit. Donnie said that for two weeks he had visited Julie in the hospital until he was barred from the room. She was never afraid of me, never acted negatively, but she hated me when she died. Becky told me, it's the toughest thing I have to live with. People say Julie is in heaven now and knows the truth, but I'm not a religious person, so that doesn't help me much. Donnie explained how he came to be suspected. 
Two days before the incident, he had been target shooting at Samoa Beach with his friend Jack Wright. Usually, Donnie would use his grandfather's gun, but it wasn't working, so Jack offered him his own stepfather's shotgun to use. Jack Wright had corroborated this at trial, explaining that Donnie had planned to return it after shooting, but he forgot it was in the back of his car. Jack said that he had bought the shells while he was in a store and bought the gas because the spout on his car was bent, so he had to fill it with a can. Testimony showed that he had spoken to the station attendant and introduced himself as Hans Hansen's boy. Donnie asked why he would draw attention to who he was if he planned to kill his entire family. The shotgun was in the back of Donnie's beat-up Ford Torino, and after the fire, he noticed that the gun appeared to have been moved in the back seat, so he grabbed it and hid it in the shop. He said, I'm not so sure that it was locked. I always locked my Corvette, but I never locked the Torino. It was a piece of junk. I kind of had an idea that Julie had been shot. I just panicked. Donnie couldn't believe the suggestion that he would kill for money. According to the Hansons' will, Donnie would have only got $500 per month or $5,000 a year, while his sisters would have gotten lump sums. Although he would have gotten a substantial chunk of money if the twins and his parents died, Hans had testified that the insurance benefits would have been dispersed according to the stipulations of the will. Donnie said, There was never a motive. It wasn't money. It wasn't that I hated Jill and Julie. It wasn't that I was crazy. I've never hit anyone. I've never assaulted anyone. I never hit Jill and Julie. And to say I shot them with a shotgun from 10 feet away? That's a pretty big jump to me. I don't understand how anyone could think I did this. I love my mom more than anything else in this world. So it's not only about Jill and Julie, but how could anyone think I hate my mom that much? Donnie was angry about how law enforcement had treated his family. The thing I find hard to believe is how they turned my family against me. When I was arrested, my mother was there and she said, I feel sorry for Donnie. I don't know if he did this. And the detective said, Anytime you feel sorry for Donnie, I have some pictures of your daughter to show you. The only pictures he had were of Jill, all burned up in the trailer. What kind of man would show a mother pictures of her burned up daughter? Donnie said that his family had never dealt with the police before, and all they wanted was an answer for Jill and Julie's deaths, even if the answer was that their son did it. He recalled being taken to the scene with his attorney and a deputy and remarked, The trailer was gone. The grass was grown up around the doorsteps because nobody cared. The swimming pool was all green with moss because there were no kids to swim there anymore. It had to be one of the worst days of my life. Donnie found it hard to believe that Hans, who had been his father since he was two years old, had turned against him. Donnie said, he was always a good friend, and I'll never understand why he gave up on me so easily. I'll never understand. Donnie also spoke about his time in jail, where he spent almost 19 months and lost 40 pounds, as well as getting an ulcer from stress. He said, Jail was hell. I never had a good day in jail. I didn't see how I could ever be convicted, but if I had been, I would have taken the death penalty. It would have been better than spending my life in prison. Every day, I thought about the gas chamber. I tried not to, but how could I not? I guess that's why I have hard feelings for Terry Farmer. The man tried to kill me. 
I'm not a religious man, but there were times that I'd go to bed at night and pray, God, don't let me wake up in the morning. I wouldn't have killed myself, though, because I'm not a quitter, and I wanted people to know the truth. I wanted my family to know the truth. Donnie described how he didn't sleep at all the night before the verdict was returned, but he finally dozed off just before the jury came back. He was grateful to be found not guilty, but he felt that the real killer was still out there. Donnie said, If there was anything positive, it was that I learned a lot about life and what's important and what isn't. The most important thing in the world is having a family and friends that love you. Without the family and friends that did support me, I wouldn't have made it. I think I'll be happy one day, but I'm not happy now. It's not that I'm manic-depressive. There are some things I'm happy about. If I could see some justice done, that would make me happy. Not only that the real killers were caught, but about what went on in this case. What happened to my family? That was a crime. A real crime. Donnie left Willow Creek and planned to return to college. He said that he was considering becoming an attorney so he could help people the way Bill Bragg helped him. The Hansons filed a wrongful death suit against Mad River Hospital following Julie's death. The case was held in Humboldt County Superior Court before Judge John Buffington in late 1991. There was a debate over whether Julie's death was caused by an embolism created when an air bubble traveled through an improperly connected IV tube into her catheter. The family's attorney highlighted that the tube was not connected properly, and there was evidence that it was leaking as Julie's shoulder was wet and the bandage covering the catheter incision was damp and peeling. Nurses testified that the damp was from perspiration, and they had checked the IV to make sure it was secure at around midnight before Julie's death. Attorneys for the hospital claimed that Julie's condition was worsening and she had died from cardiac failure brought on by sudden weight loss but the pathologist and treating physician believed it was an obvious air embolism caused by the IV tube disconnecting. Dr. Lochnar, who had inserted the catheter, said, I think that it probably had worked loose earlier in the day from moisture. Even when she was lying in bed, air was slowly going into her heart, but it didn't become life-threatening until she sat up. The Hansen's attorney said it was less about the nurses not following procedure and more about the loss. He said, a wedding, grandchildren, all those great moments in life are lost to the Hansons. Not a day goes by that they don't think about it. The jury ultimately found that the hospital had not been intentionally negligent in January 1992. The Hansons hired a private investigator and turned the twins' $50,000 college fund into a fund to be used to get justice. Betty said, It's been over five years. Clues are getting colder, memories dim. We're concerned that it's going to be less likely that we find the person. There's not a day that goes by that we don't remember. Never. The Sheriff's Department confirmed that the case was closed after Donnie's acquittal, but District Attorney Terry Farmer said, Certainly, if any information is brought to our attention that would warrant charging other people, we would do that. The possibility of other people being involved was one we never discounted. We just couldn't prove who they were. If anyone knows, it's Donnie Hansen, and he was never willing to share that information. Donnie denied covering for anyone, 
and explained that as he was facing the death penalty, he would be risking his life for someone if he did. He also said he hoped the reward would bring someone forward with information. He told the Times Standard, If I had a wish, I'd wish that worked. They were my sisters who died, and if they could find out who did this, that's great. Maybe a reward is what it will take. Betty and Hans built a new house close to where the trailer stood, and although it was painful to return to the scene, they felt that Willow Creek was the only place they would get the support they needed. Many people believe that Donnie Hansen got away with murder, but the evidence was not strong enough to convict him. Donnie has changed his name and moved away. The case remains unsolved. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We appreciate you listening, and please be safe.